Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, October the 2nd. And we're going to begin sort of an interesting couple of weeks and that we're going to speak, we are picking one specific passage of scripture and we're going to look at that passage um, over the next several weeks. So kind of really looking in detail at that. You know, each of us has asked ourselves at some point, what can I do about the problems that are so widespread and are so serious today? And, and how helpful can I really expect to be as just one person? Well, the scriptures have an answer to these questions, and we might expect that. They, they are, after all, designed to, to perfect the man of God that he may be perfect, so to speak, completely finished and to every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3.17. So we should expect that there would be ample guidance given in the scriptures to enable us to handle the problems and the questions which seem to be closing in on us on every side. And the passage that we're going to center these thoughts on over these next few weeks is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the first six verses. So here's another one of those pockets of condensed wisdom that we find frequently throughout the page, pages of scriptures, both in the Old Testament and in the New, in which it's very um, helpful to take our time and to really dig through it. This kind of a passage has to be gone through slowly, thoughtfully. And so I am proposing that we take ample time to do just that. The introduction to this section of 2 Corinthians is, is found in verse 1 through 4. Paul, writing to his friends, the church in Corinth, probably writing this from the city of Ephesus, says, I, Paul, <clears throat> entreat myself, you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold to you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some of who suspect us of acting in worldly fashion. For though we live in the world, we are not carrying on a worldly war. For the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That's 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. In these verses, we have, we have before us the primary theme of this section. The background of it is this challenge to the authority of Paul by the Corinthians. There were, there were some among them who were seeking to undermine the effect of Paul's words, both in his letters and in his preaching to them. And there are many today who object strenuously to what Paul teaches. In certain circles, we're told that Paul actually changed the teachings of Jesus and, and so then changed Christianity from a simple, easily understood message to a highly complicated theological discussion, difficult to understand, and completely different in intent and in content from that which was preached by Jesus. But something of that had already started in the early church. When these Corinthians had received letters from Paul, some of them were angered by them. And they resisted strongly what he had said. Specifically, as this passage reveals, certain Christians in Corinth were saying that Paul was essentially no different than anyone else. His apostleship really gave him no right to speak with authority um, or more authority than anyone else had. And, and his motivations were essentially the same as anyone's. In other words, he is out. Paul was out to get what he wants by whatever policy will work. 
Paul was quoting them when he writes, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold to you when I am away. They were saying this was his, his procedure, his maneuver, his way to try to get us to do what he wants. In other words, they were saying he is simply another religious figure who is playing the old game of power politics. So we do not need to pay any more attention to him than we would to anyone else who came in and tried to take advantage of us um, for their own purposes. And Paul quickly and powerfully repudiates this. And he says, in effect, this is not the case. You, you know, you guys are wrong. You have failed to recognize the fundamental change which occurs in a Christian. When a person becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, something fundamental, something absolutely radical occurs in them so that they cannot see things as they once did. He says, furthermore, you, you don't understand the radical difference with which an apostle who is by virtue of his office, a model believer, a model Christian, a pattern for others, must face life with. If you think that I act like other people, that my motives, my purposes, and my goals are no different than ordinary men and women, then you have fundamentally misunderstood the whole issue. And then he goes on to say in verses 3 and 4, For though we live in the world, we are not carrying on a worldly war. For the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. In the Greek, literally, Paul does not say quite what is said there. The phrase, for though we live in the world, we are not carrying on worldly war, is actually, for though we walk or live in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The revisers here have substituted the word world for flesh. This is not exactly wrong. This is actually pretty correct. They are recognizing the close affiliation between what the Bible calls the flesh and or society or the world. These two are closely combined. They're, they're closely associated. So what then is the flesh? Well, it's basically what is wrong with human nature. <clears throat> You see, the flesh is the monkey wrench which was inserted into the machinery of humanity at the very beginning and which we all inherit from our ancestors. It is, it is responsible for the fact that all of us begin life with a scar, with a twist in our mechanism. It's not very long before it is very apparent that we are fundamentally selfish. We do not have to teach babies to be selfish. We, we do not have to send them to a private school to learn how to misbehave, to resist parents or authority, to be inherently selfish. It comes quite natural. The problem crops up in any individual, no matter what kind of background, exposure, or environment that they're subjected to. It is the bloodstream of humanity. This is the unpleasant fact which society constantly resist, which, which humanity does not want to face, but which the word of God bluntly and clearly states. If, if that is the flesh, that tendency to evil in every one of us, in every individual, then if we put all these flesh-centered, flesh-governed people together in a society, we have what the Bible calls the world. It's, is, it is society governed by the flesh, society with all the power structures that we're, we're all but too familiar with, all built on self-interest. This, this any observer of human life can see pervades the world today. Self 
interest is what is behind everything. It's, it is why the revisers have substituted the word world here. You know, and in a sense, they're right. This is clearly the idea that Paul had in mind. He says that we're not acting like other people. We do not operate from the same motives. There's something different about us. If you try to judge us on the same basis you judge others, we're well, going to be far off. You will miss the point entirely. He is declaring also the fundamental tension in which a Christian lives. Paul says we live in the flesh, in the world of normal society, but we don't fight on those terms. We're not carrying on a worldly war. Perhaps it might be helpful in this connection to look at the rendering of a certain other versions. Um, the old J.B. Phillips, which way uh, was the predecessor of the message, puts it like this. The truth is that although, of course, we lead normal human lives, the battle we are fighting is on the spiritual level. The New English Bible puts it, weak men we may be, but it is not as such that we fight our battles. Perhaps the most helpful might be the Living Letters translations, which says, It is true that I am an ordinary, weak human being, but I don't use human plans and methods to win my battles. Notice the balance of that. You know, Paul is speaking not only for himself, but for all Christians, all believers. Remember that an apostle is a pattern Christian one to be modeled. They are what all Christians are supposed to be, really. And, and he says, first, we live in the world. We don't run away from it. You know, monastic life has appealed to many through the centuries. History is full of men and women who have retreated to quiet places and tried to shut away all the mundane stresses and cares of life. Count uh, Tolstoy of Russia, Rousseau of France, Gauguin, the, pa- the, the painter, all tried to run away from life. There are many who seek to do that now. What's astonishing is the number of Christians, the number of believers who have the same attitude. You see, we have what some have called the Bible City Syndrome, which attempts to create a Christian greenhouse, an atmosphere which is completely and thoroughly Christian from the womb to the tomb. And it permits no invasion of secular ideas or forces. It seeks to insulate and isolate as much as possible the believer from the world. This is basically unbiblical and basically sub-Christian because it is contrary to the very clear word of Paul who says, we Christians live right in the midst of the world. That is where we're supposed to be. Jesus himself Put it this way, behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves, Matthew 10, 16. It must be a crazy sheep herder who would do a thing like that. But that is how radical the difference between Christianity and the false versions of Christianity are. The Bible city syndrome is producing thousands of Christian dropouts. It is thoroughly unbiblical. No, Paul says, we live in the flesh. We live in the world. That is where we are intended to live. But yet, says Paul, though we live in the world and do not run away from society, we do not use human plans and methods to win our battles. It's important that we understand that because here's the problem. Here's where the problems have come, right? Many have recognized that Christians are to live in the world. But then go on to assume that a Christian living in the world must be like the world, that, that we must think like the world, that we must depend on the thoughts, philosophies, ideas, 
writers of the world and draw all of their arguments and solutions to the problems from these sources. Well, Paul says, no, that's, that's you're wrong there. <clears throat> if you judge me as doing this, then you, you, you don't understand the Christian position at all. We do not use human plans and methods to win our battles. <clears throat> so here, in, in my opinion, is the fundamental error of those who seek to make social concern the primary task of the church today. There are opposing, they are opposing the right enemy, but with the wrong weapons. They're seeking to employ the weapons of the world, which Paul renounces. He repudiates them entirely. He says, we do not war a worldly warfare. We do not use human plans and methods to win our battles. What are these weapons of the world, these human plans and methods to win battles? Well, we can hardly escape them. They're on every side. They're in every podcast, every YouTube channel, every publication that we pick up. These are full of approaches to the solution of human problems. They are all perfectly sincere, and they're often characterized by a lot of dedication and a lot of zeal, and they're very commendable in the extreme, but they are worldly. They are of the flesh. They're limited. These weapons are politics, action blocks, organized programs, demonstrations, boycotting, picketing, in some cases, even violence. And arson. So let's face some facts very plainly. These are clear, clearly worldly weapons, are they not? They are what would be suggested by any non-Christian who is confronted by these problems and is trying to find a solution. When we openly, clearly, and unequivocally propose these kind of solutions, it means we cannot see beyond the material, beyond the visible, the physical situation. And anyone who reads the New Testament sees that this is always the way of the world. Its solutions are fundamentally shallow and superficial because they are essentially one-dimensional. But that is not what we have in the New Testament. This is not how a Christian should approach these problems. As Paul puts it in this very letter, just a couple chapters back, we look at not at the things which are seen, but also at the unseen. We look not only to the temporal, but also to the Eternal, that's 2 Corinthians 4.18. There is a new dimension that must come in here. The believer, the follower of Christ, approach to any basic problem, whether of society or of an individual, must be different than that of the world if we expect to win any battles. And the wonderful thing about the scriptures is that life is constantly confirming them. Life is kind of like a laboratory in which all these scriptural principles are being tested. They've been worked out for us. And we can then see for ourselves, if we observe enough of life over a long enough span, which is right and which is wrong, the worldly solution or the scriptural one. You know, history confirms the fact that the world's weapons do not win battles. The ancient world struggled with exactly the same problems that we struggle with today. There is nothing new under the sun. There were the same intrigues, the same political maneuvers, the same plots, the same programs, the same solutions to, pro to problems. It's remarkable to see that long before Jesus, people were struggling with exactly the same problems that oppress us today. Sure, they maybe have a different name, they maybe have a different nuance, but they're the same problem. There are no secular solutions that work. At best, they only temporarily rearrange the symptom of the problem. And that is the most that we can hope for from worldly approaches. No, says Paul. The weapons of our warfare are not, they're not car carnal. They're not fleshly. 
They're not worldly, but they're mighty. They have divine power at pulling down strongholds. They work. They win. They destroy strongholds. They overthrow entrenched evil. They strike off shackles. They set people free. That's what they are for. And if they do not do that, they're, they're worthless. They're, they're no better than any other program. But these weapons work. They may not be evident, but they are effective. Well, what are these weapons? That is the major issue we want to face, right? What are these weapons? If they're not the normal human plans, then what are they? If they do not include these approaches what, that are so common, then what are they? I wonder what, what, what we're answering in our own mind to that question. How many Christians, how many believers can answer that question? What are the weapons with which we are to encounter problems, the battles of life? The interesting thing is that Paul takes this so much for granted that his, re- that his readers would know this that he doesn't even list them here. You know, we have to read them into the text from other places. He takes it for granted that they would know what his weapons are. All of us face problems, normal, common problems, depression, discouragement, bad health, lack of resources, social pressures, family troubles, in-laws, greed, guilt, shame. As a society, we face problems together. Racial tensions, war, poverty, pollution, inflation, death, taxes, all these common problems. These are the battles of life, aren't they? I mean, very few of us will have to fight on the battlefields of some foreign country. Some will but not all. But here are the battles of life. These are what Paul calls in this passage strongholds. And we'll look at that word more closely next week, but these are the strongholds that he mentions. Situations where evil is entrenched and it's powerful. But yet he he has adequate weapons for these. The Christian is not inadequate to deal with these things. They are they are the only one actually who is adequate to deal with them. So So let's don't waste any more time with with things that have proved inadequate long ago. We have adequate weapons. And they don't come from one specific passage, but from the general thrust of the Scripture itself, supported by many, many different passages. And there are at least four weapons of the Christian by which we can face battles, the battles of life, and which, if we face them with these weapons, we'll win. Not only will we win in our individual life, but we will be a tremendously powerful factor to solve the, them on the level of society as well. Well, first, we must place truth. Truth is the chief weapon of the believer. I don't mean education. Education is usually seized on by those attacking the problems of society as the most effective way of solving them. That very fact indicates that people see that knowledge of reality is a very important thing in solving problems. It is a powerful weapon. The only difficulty is that the world in general, and many Christians as well, equate education with knowledge of reality. But we we can't do that. Secular education is a compound of truth and falsehood, both equally powerfully taught. Error is often conveyed as powerfully as truth. So education oftentimes serves only to enhance the problem. It doesn't always separate the chaff and the wheat. It's not always true. But what I'm talking about now is truth. The glory of Christianity is that it introduces truth into any and every situation. It reveals reality. Jesus Christ came in the words of this present generation to tell it 
as it is. And he did so. Invariably, always, he told it as it is. He let people know the facts about life and about mankind, humankind. He unveiled reality. He tore away the illusions and the delusions under which we were working. He ripped off veils. We can watch him exposing the faulty thinking of the Pharisees, of the Sadducees, and all the other groups with which he came into contact, including his own disciples. Here in the Word of God, it is in the truth as it is in Jesus, we have a powerful weapon. The greatest one there is in lots of respects. Telling things the way they are. To simply talk about life as the scriptures reveal it is powerful. It's surprising how it grasps, how it moves and captures the minds and thoughts of people. Truth is sort of the stock that we trade in as a Christian. That is, if we accept the word of God as the truth about life, and if we proclaim it and demonstrate it in our own life, we ourselves become a mighty weapon for setting others free, and for solving the ills of society. Not only truth proclaimed, but truth demonstrated. A Christian, above all others, ought to be characterized by openness and honesty. There's there's a potency and a wholesomeness in living life transparently rather than endlessly erecting poses and postures and fraudulent pieties. That's a descriptive word for a lot of Christianity, isn't it? Fraudulent pieties. This world of ours is generously supplied with and with pitchmen and con artists and those who have axes to grind. These are enthusiastically and persistently using the big lie on us. So it is an arresting and refreshing experience to meet a person or a group that is authentic and transparently open. And that is what every Christian ought to be in every Christian group. I heard of an evangelical church that is teaching its people that they have that they have the right to privacy in their lives. No Christian has the right to a private life. Our lives are to be lived openly before all, transparent, a spectacle to the world. We we have no private lives and we must not expect it. It's basically and fundamentally wrong. Christians are to be demonstrations of the truth. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The second weapon is love. And I know this is the most overworked word in our vocabulary, but let's be, let's be real specific. I am speaking about biblical love, the kind that requires no return from the individual that is being loved. That is love, the kind that is described in 1 Corinthians 13, the kind that loves for Jesus' sake. If we cannot love that way, then we are not following Jesus. If we can, then we must begin to show acceptance, courtesy, and concern without partiality or merit, without regard to the background of the color of skin or anything else about an individual, except that he or she is a man or woman loved by God for whom Jesus Christ died. Our love must go out to them, not our momentary interest until we gain uh, sort of their belief in our, in our creed, but our genuine love, demanding nothing in return. That is love, and that is a mighty weapon. That is the way the early church won their way against councils and governors, kings and edicts, and everything else. They won it by the demonstration of a warmth of acceptance that made their meetings such glorious occasions of fellowship that the whole world hung around, drooling, wanting to get in. The third weapon is righteousness. 
Fundamentally, that means obedience to both truth and love. It is what we call integrity. It's the refusal to yield to expediency. As Paul writes to the Ephesians, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, Ephesians 4.17. We can't go on excusing our weaknesses. There are no excuses left for us. We have all that it takes to be all that is needed. We can't go on justifying our failures. We have no reason for failure. We have to stop our lying, our stealing, our immorality, and our harshness towards one another, our unforgiveness, our jealousy, and our petulance. And in its place, because righteous is never just negative, we must show tenderheartedness and acceptance and forgiveness for Jesus' sake, the warmth of love. It's true that if, if all we can hold up on behalf of our righteous standing is that we don't smoke or we don't drink or we don't gamble or don't go to dirty movies, then we are a pitiful spectacle of a Christian. If we are a Christian, there must be, more, there must be about our life a quality that cannot be explained in terms of our personality. It is a positive glow, a warmth, and a radiance that cannot be explained except by the fact that God is at work in us. The fourth weapon is is a compound one. We'll put it this way. It's faith and prayer. And, And we put the two together because they are almost indistinguishable. Faith is reliance on the direct activity of God in the human life. And prayer is the request for that activity. Faith is the expectation that God will do it. And those things work linked together. If, if, if we do not think that they're powerful, then I suggest we read through Hebrews 11. There's a list of the achievements of faith in society in terms of government, warfare, social wills, battles of every kind. Faith is the expectation that God has not dismissed society, nor does he exist remote from it, but he is involved in it. And he is active. He's moving. He does things. He changes. He thwarts. He overthrows. He builds up. He exalts. And he does all this in answer through the medium of prayer. So there they are. Truth, love, righteousness, and faith slash prayer. These are the weapons of our warfare. They they are not carnal. They are not of the flesh. They are not of the world, but they are mighty. And they have divine power to eliminating strongholds, to pulling down high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. They all work together. We can hardly isolate one from the other. They are all necessary. And when the church begins to major on these weapons, she will become a mighty power in society, a tremendously potent force, which will rapidly change the outward circumstances, the face of things as they are. Then the church will be what God designed it to be. And those glowing words, Song of Solomon, an army army bright as the moon, glorious as the sun, and terrible as army is an army with banners. Amen, and God bless.